This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I remember first learning about sudden infant death syndrome a few decades ago. It was just before actually having children. And the thought of it just absolutely terrified me. What a horrific thing to happen. You put your child down to sleep, everything seems fine, and then they never wake up. And the most terrifying thing of all, it has remained a mystery, remained unexplainable after all of these years. But new research, this is so significant, new research has now taken us a step closer to understanding the why. Why does this happen? So let's get this new research explained to us. Joining us is Dr. Aideen Moore, who's in the Medical Advisory Committee at Baby's Breath and an honorary staff neonatologist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Moore. Good morning. Yes. Well, um, I think it helps explain what, what we know about sudden infant death syndrome, which, as you say, is an extremely tragic event. On the other hand, we have, you know, the, although it is still a very important cause of neonatal of death in the first year of life, those rates have decreased very much over the last 10, 20 years by the public health method, such as putting the baby on their back to sleep. This whole campaign back to sleep and the infant's uh, sleeping position has greatly, um, as I said, decreased the incidence of SIDS. Right. So not to have any excess bedding in, uh, you know, pillows or blankets in the bed of a young child or young infant. So these have really helped. But as to why it happens... And this helps explain it a little bit, although it's still very preliminary. I remember when that first research came out about, you know, putting kids to babies to sleep on their backs. And that was such a huge shift. Uh, But clearly, you know, health officials have worked so hard on this. But Dr. Moore, this new research, what is it telling us about SIDS? Like, what do we know about it? It helps explain a little part of the story as to, sorry, as to what a vulnerable infant might be because maybe they don't arouse very well. Obviously, when you go to, you know, the control of breathing is very much automatic. We don't think that we have to take a breath. But that's something that in a newborn baby is only just slowly developing, and it's not as well developed as in an adult. And perhaps these, what this research showed was that in this group of babies where they had a, a low enzyme, uh, the you know, butyl cholinesterase A, their levels were lower, and maybe their arousal is not as good as other babies. Okay, so they if it's an arouse. right, is it if it's an enzyme, then can we test for that? Um, I, it potentially in far in in the future, but there's a whole lot of other steps to do before that. This study was done on the dried blood spots, you know, that all the newborn babies get. So they could, I so they went back and you know, years a number of years later, they looked through all their databases. And they found the infants who died from SIDS and they could find their dried blood spots and and a whole lot of controlled and normal babies in the community and um, compared them. And that's how they found that the SIDS babies had lower levels. But um, 
as I said, it, it will be one part of the puzzle so that perhaps in the future, as part of a newborn screening, you could include that sort of test and, and say, well, this baby is at risk or at increased risk for SIDS. But that has a whole other, you know, are you going to really frighten parents? Because when I started my training in medicine, um, we used to um, respiratory traces on all the babies. You know, if there'd been a SIDS death in the family, the next little baby had this respiratory monitor put on and we sent the parents home with an apnea alarm. And that really was, was extremely difficult for most parents. You know, the, the alarm would malfunction. Mm-hmm. This is when we thought that it paid, played a major role in it, which probably wasn't proven in the end anyway. And it, But it, it was very difficult for parents. The alarm would malfunction. Another kid would plug it out. And it, it really didn't help at all. So um, we have to be careful. You know, you might identify, and what would the risk of SIDS be? Is it going to be 5% or 10%? Because it still is only one part of the um, uh, puzzle because the, the critical developmental period means that as the baby gets older, um, there's less likelihood of, of their having a SIDS death. And also there's usually a, a slight, exod- you know, other stressor like a very mild cold or something like that that tips the baby over. But the big thing is when they're, you know, if they're, if they're lying down, obviously this is where the back to sleep came from because if they're on their tummy, they're rebreathing their own air. And, and um, maybe particularly if their arousal mechanism to wake up isn't very good, uh, they just go to sleep and the CO2 rises and rises and rises and they don't, and they don't wake up. So putting the, for now anyway, putting the baby... Uh, on its back and making sure that they're in a safe environment without, you know, cushions or pillows or on a couch right. around them is the most imp- is what we can do. But it's certainly, it's got a lot of interest this paper has and it's going to, you know, make sure that more research in this area continues. Right. So is that the direction now, Dr. Morris? So this is the kind of paper that makes, you know, SIDS researchers sit up and go, aha, okay, now we need to dive deeper into this. Well, I think a whole lot of even I even years and years wrote a paper, and we were wondering about this in in a different thing, central hypoventilation syndrome. But yes, a number of researchers have always been following along this line. But certainly, it strengthens strengthens this line of investigation, and perhaps um, if the research community realise it, aha, uh-huh, maybe there there is a potential avenue here that they will then divert some more funding into this area, which is always the other issue trying to get. Uh, funding for research. Right. But this is one of those campaigns, though, that was really quite successful and continues to be, isn't it, Dr. Moore? This idea of like telling new parents to put the baby to sleep on its back. Oh, I think so. Yes. and But a lot of governments and public health agencies really put a whole lot of effort into that. And really, the results have been remarkable. They have halved the incidence of SIDS, which is, which is great, but it is still tragic that these that these incidences still do happen. Right. It has been very remarkable, as you say. Right, but still a lot of work to do. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. We, we appreciate your time. That's Dr. Aideen Moore. Uh, she's with the Medical Advisory Committee at Babies, Breath, and Honorary Staff Neonatologist Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Oh, and also Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto. So we're talking about sudden infant death syndrome. It has remained a mystery for decades and decades. And this latest research now from overseas 
shows that it might have to do with an enzyme that, you know, helps babies rouse, like helps them wake up. And if that enzyme is lacking or deficient in some way, then it can potentially lead to sudden infant death syndrome. So that's a huge, I think, step forward to unlocking some of the mysteries of this. But for now, the best advice remains, right, put your baby to sleep on its back, don't have any excess bedding, pillows, and anything like that in the crib. That's a huge, huge shift that has taken place over the last 20 years on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, we're talking a little more science this morning. And boy, is this next story fascinating. So for the last 20 years or so, the Wildlife Conservation Society has spread out all over the Amazon. And they've been trying to get some candid shots of, oh my goodness, all the species that are within there. And that is a huge task, right? Like they had to set out cameras. And it took 120 different institutions to cooperate on this because they were setting out more than 50,000 cameras. And that means that they managed to get pictures of so many species that you wouldn't believe it. So we thought, we want to hear about this, right? Dr. Robert Wallace is with us now, the director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's Greater Medidi Tambopada Landscape Program and co-author of this camera trapping study. Dr. Wallace, thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. Thank you very much for the invitation. And I know you're talking to us all the way from Bolivia, so we appreciate you taking the time to do this. How many species did we were we able to get a look at with all these cameras? Almost 300 species were registered by all these different researchers and institutions that have participated in, um, in this study. So, yeah, it gives a really good idea. Uh, uh, there are images of all sorts of different animals, and it's, uh, it's, it's super exciting to be part of this. So what was it like? Like, what did it take to get all of these cameras put in there? And how many cameras are we talking about? Right, so, so there's, there's thousands of cameras that have been put out over the Amazon in the last 20 years. So camera traps are a really, really key methodology and technique that we use as, as conservation scientists to understand what's happening and what species are around in different areas, but also what's happening to those species. And so over the last sort of 25 years, um, the science around the use of camera traps has really moved on with the advent of uh, mark recapture statistics, which allow us to um, estimate how many animals of species that are individually recognizable. So, for example, jaguars, which is the very symbol of the Amazon, their rosette patterns are unique. They're like fingerprints. So if we can manage to photograph both sides of a jaguar, to do that, we put out two cameras at each station so that we can do that. We can actually count how many jaguars there are. And on the other hand, when we put camera traps out for things like jaguars, We also generate lots and lots of information about other species that also happen to wander through the camera trap stations. And that can also be used with other types of statistical approaches to monitor what's happening to wildlife in the Amazon over time. And so in this initiative, which was led by the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research and the Friedrich Schiller University Jena, WCS was super happy to collaborate with this because we have data from from 20 years from our different the sites where we work in the Amazon. And together with all these other researchers, which are almost 150 different researchers from over 120 institutions, when you put all that information together, 
It's super interesting because it allows us to look at patterns of distribution and abundance. But more importantly, it allows us in the future to use that data to, 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 with new uh, scientific techniques. Right. Dr. Wallace, looking at all of this, what has been the most surprising thing to you? Was there a moment that you had where you thought, man, I can't believe what we're seeing you're doing here? Well, it's funny because, um, uh, you know, the camera traps, many of the institutions and the researchers who have participated in this collaborative study um, which is one of many different studies, actually, of this type that's been led by the um, Sao Paulo State University in Brazil. They have been um, encouraging researchers in different sorts of fields to pull information together, because when we pull information, obviously that allows us to make comparative um, analyses and, 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 and shed light that single studies can't do. But if you ask me, it's what one, one of the things is that really when we put these camera traps out, we're often putting out in any single campaign, for example, in Bolivia, we're putting out over 100 camera trap stations. And we're still, even though we've been doing it for 20 years, every now and then something wanders into the camera trap that we hadn't previously registered. So it's funny because just, the, just this week, uh, we collected some camera traps from a uh, from an Andean forest, for example, and we have a new a new mammal record from from those forests um, just this week. So, so there are always things, there are always surprises, and I think um, the really exciting thing is that as science moves forward, there are new approaches. So, just a couple of months ago, I was in a workshop that is is potentially going to allow us to estimate population densities for species that are not individually recognizable because most of the species aren't. You can't actually tell which, who, which who is who in terms of individuals. Right. But there are new techniques that are going to allow us to actually get a handle on that. So, so more and more, these, these methodologies will become super important in terms of monitoring wildlife, which, of course, given the threats to the Amazon and, of course, given global climate change, that becomes increasingly important. Oh, fascinating work. Dr. Wallace, thank you for your time this morning. No problem, a pleasure. Thank you very much for yes. the invitation. Good luck to you. That is Dr. Robert Wallace. He's down in Bolivia, and he's been working on this huge study. He's a co-author of the camera trapping study in the Amazon. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we've all heard of chicken pox, of course, but all of a sudden in the news, there's all these stories about monkey pox. Now, it's confirmed that we have our first two cases in Canada. More cases are under investigation, but I'm seeing headlines about this from all over the world, which makes me, of course, wonder, well, what is this? Do we need to worry about this too? So we thought, let's go to an expert for some answers. Dr. Isaac Bagosh joins us now, infectious disease clinician at the University of Toronto. Good morning. Thank you for being back with us. Oh, my pleasure. Always happy to chat. Okay. I, I wish it was about something happier. Always, right? But what... Well, at least it's not COVID. So. Uh, uh, you know what? Good point. At least it's not COVID. What is monkeypox? It's a viral infection. Uh, it's been around for millennia, discovered by humans in the 1950s. It's in Central Africa and West Africa, likely lives in uh, non-human animal populations like rodent populations. There's spillover events, not infrequently uh, into humans, mainly in the countries of Nigeria, Cameroon, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. They've had periodic outbreaks there over the years. Once in a while, people hop on a plane and you get a case distant from the endemic area. So there's been cases in, for example, the United Kingdom, the United States before. 
Sometimes you see uh, onward transmission of those, you know, a family member or a healthcare worker is exposed and they get infected. But uh, usually these are, are quelled pretty quickly. Uh, this obviously is a much larger situation and, you know, it's not entirely clear what's driving this larger situation, but uh, we're certainly seeing more and more cases pop up. This is not COVID-19. It's monkeypox. It's a bit different. Okay. And so why then all of a sudden are there all these headlines about monkeypox? Is it because of the size of the outbreak? Yeah, I think what's unique about this is that there has been uh, a greater amplification of this virus and more cases are seen in international settings uh, than than what we'd expect to see. And I'd remind people that, you know, there have been outbreaks and even sizable ones involving thousands of people in uh, in African countries where this virus is known to exist. And, you know, the, sometimes they grumble along for a while, but the local public health authorities are usually able to get it under control. Uh, but, and, you know, it might take some time for this one to get under control as well as we learn more about it and as more and more cases pop up. But, uh, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, what they're doing is they're, when they find a local case, they are looking at all the close contacts of that individual and vaccinating them. There is a vaccine, and the vaccine, believe it or not, is the same vaccine as the smallpox vaccine. They're related viruses, so the smallpox vaccine will will certainly work, and it's actually even licensed for monkeypox in many jurisdictions as well. So this is called a ring vaccine strategy, and it's it's just a good way to get get an infection like this under control. Right. So are a lot of people already vaccinated for smallpox? Yeah, yeah. Depending on where you are in the world and depending on how old you are, many people have received a smallpox vaccine. Um, we, most places stopped vaccinating at some point in the seventies or eighties. Uh, I'm old, but I haven't received a smallpox vaccine. I'm 78. So I, 1978. So I never got, I never got one, but there are certainly our listeners who have a little scar on their shoulder where they might've received this. Uh, and, oh, wait, I have that. Uh, you know, I have yeah, that. Well, so there's two, right? There's a smallpox vaccine scar on the shoulder. And it's interesting. Some people got a tuberculosis vaccine and they have a little scar on their shoulder. If you're, you know what you're looking for, you can kind of distinguish them sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so a lot of people have the smallpox vaccine scar. And, and there is cross-protection. There is. Now, there might be waning immunity because people might have received that, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But, uh, but, but certainly it does provide cross-protection. And, uh, and it will provide protection if people are vaccinated, right. if, they, if they've been exposed. Yeah. Do you also think that maybe just right now there is this heightened awareness and sensitivity to stories about an illness that we see as unusual? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, so these are two completely different infections, but you can't ignore the parallels, right? Infection that's known to be in, a, in non-human animals in a distant part of the world jumps into humans, human-to-human transmission, global mobility, and cases are popping up you know, thousands and thousands of miles from where we'd expect them. Right. Like, th- those are perils. And you know what? I don't mean to be Captain Doom and Gloom here, but you're going to see more of this. You are. You are. And if it's not monkeypox, it's another, you know, listen, for people that are paying attention, right, in 2013, there was a big outbreak of a virus called chikungunya. Funny name, but it's a nasty little viral infection transmitted by mosquitoes in the Caribbean, and it swept through South America. It, no, it doesn't exist there, and now it does. Dengue. People have heard of dengue. That's expanding. People have heard of Zika virus in 2014, 2015, all throughout 
Latin America and the Caribbean. Like th- right. this is happening with increasing frequency. Okay, but how do we, I guess, how do we roll with that then, Dr. Burgos? How do we know this one I need to worry about, this one I don't need to worry about as much? Well, you chat with your friendly neighborhood infectious disease specialist or friendly neighborhood epidemiologist or public health uh, specialist who can hopefully put it in perspective. This is not COVID. There will be more cases of this, but this is this is not this is not COVID. There's vaccines, and the transmission dynamics are different, and uh, and it's not COVID. But but again, like it's just something to be mindful of, and and uh, and you know, I think people we will see more cases. Uh, we absolutely will. But this is something that I you know obviously we're learning more, and I'm not going to pretend that to know everything about monkeypox because this is truly a neglected infection in the sense that. It does exist primarily in low-income settings, World Bank definition of low-income settings, low-income countries, and we don't pay a lot of attention to them. We don't study them. They don't get nearly the same degree of funding as you know, heart disease or cancer does, and, and as a consequence, we don't know enough about them. So we'll learn more about this, but everything we do know suggests that you know, this is something that, like, based on prior experiences with other, with other outbreaks, you know, this might be bigger, but perhaps this can likely get get under control faster. Right. So let the health officials worry about this one. And if you need to know about it, they'll tell you. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. And I, also, like, I, exactly what we're doing right now. Just a calm, informed conversation about what this is, what this isn't, what we know, what's being done. And, and I think just like anything else, a, a well-informed public is, 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 is the best, right? With, yes. with factual information. Well, I hope that helps. Uh, Dr. Bagosh, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> you will. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. That's Dr. Isaac Bagosh, who's the infectious disease clinician at the University of Toronto. We've all seen the stories, right? I feel like all of a sudden, out of nowhere in the last week, all these stories about monkeypox out there in the news. Great advice from Dr. Bagosh explaining what it is all about, why we are seeing those stories. And you know what? Just good. I think we're going to see this now because people were so concerned about what happened with COVID-19. Anytime there's any kind of a uh, outbreak of anything, it is definitely going to be amplified and ramped up there. But great advice from him this morning. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's yet another fascinating story about the extradition system in our country. There's a Canadian fugitive who's been on the run, was found living in Puerto Rico, actually, under a fake name. And so now Canada's trying to extradite him. But this case has gotten a little bit more complicated. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Kim Bolden, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Hi, Kim. Hi, Simi. Okay, this case, this is really interesting. So he's challenging what the case is against him, but he's doing this from Puerto Rico? Yes, he is. Connor DeMonte is charged uh, with sort of conspiring to kill Kevin LeClaire and the Bacon Brothers of the Red Scorpion Gang way back in February of 2009. Uh, those charges were filed against him <clears throat> Pardon me, in January of 2011, and he's been on the run ever since. Finally, this past February, he was found living under the name Johnny Williams 
in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He's now in custody there, and he could just surrender and say, okay, you got me. I've been living under a fake name. I'll I'll come back to Canada and uh, face these charges, finally. Uh, But he is fighting to get more details of the evidence against him up here uh, from Canadian authorities. He's also fighting to get more evidence collected by U.S. authorities on the United Nations gang, because, of course, one of the gang founders, Clay Roosh, is convicted in serving uh, drug smuggling and money laundering charges um, in the United States. He's convicted in serving a lengthy sentence there. So, you know, uh, Johnny Williams, uh, the real Connor DeMonte, is saying, look, I want to know what kind of things you turn turned up during your investigation, U.S. authorities, and I, I feel like I should have all this information uh, So the judge in my extradition case can decide if there is enough evidence to send me back to Canada to face trial. Okay, that's a bit of a different take on this, isn't it? Well, people are entitled to due process, certainly when you cover cases of people charged in the United States uh, and you have, um, you know, Canadian authorities laying out the U.S. case in court here in Vancouver, for example, uh, they often say the same things. They say, oh, there's not much evidence. I don't think I should be sent off to another country uh, to face trial, you know, based on these facts as we know them so far. But really, uh, extradition hearings look at whether there is just a basic case that's been made out against the person. They don't decide whether the person's guilty. Exactly. That's for a judge or jury, obviously, to decide down the road uh, if a case goes to trial. So it is kind of due process for him, but it certainly indicates that he's not going to voluntarily come back to Canada, despite the fact he was living under a fake name. Uh, There's no indication of how he's been making his money for the last 11 years. And when he was arrested in February, he had a firearm on him uh, that was illegally possessed. Okay, so there's lots there, clearly. Kim, how long has this case actually been going on for? Well, since February 2009, when Kevin LeClaire, one of the high-ranking Red Scorpions, very close to the Bacon Brothers, uh, was shot outside a strip mall in Langley, just right off the highway there. It was four in the afternoon on a Friday. Uh, There were shoppers coming out of an IGA store. He had just come out of the Brown Social House where he'd, uh, it was very creepy because other people have already been convicted of uh, participating in this conspiracy and also uh, of, you know, the, the actual shooter, a fellow named Corey Valley, a hired hitman, was convicted of, of shooting, uh, first-degree murder for shooting LeClaire on that day. Another one of the shooters uh, was later killed in Mexico. So, you know, the same evidence uh, that's being highlighted in the U.S., uh, in the case against Connor DeMonte has already come out in related cases here in Canada and led to convictions. And yet he's challenging the credibility of the witnesses. He's saying, you know, uh, you know, this is all speculative. There isn't enough linking me to these crimes, and I don't think I should be sent back to Canada. Okay, and did they not also, you were reporting this too, they found other ID on him too. Yes, he had... Um, uh, a third identity, uh, you know, in identification that was found in his apartment. Uh, so, you know, we don't really know everything he's been up to. He's been in Puerto Rico. I've talked to a lot of people that knew him, were very shocked. Uh, he was living a fairly high-profile life down there, saying he was a philanthropist, made his money, you know, uh, through investments, and was working for a beekeeping charity. 
where, you know, they kind of are trying to reestablish the bee population there after one of the big hurricanes a few years ago. So he's been uh, settled there for about five years, uh, but we don't know where he's uh, been going. You know, has he been leaving under these fake identities? He claimed he was from California, that his uh, wife and children had been killed somehow, uh, though they are very much alive. Uh, so there is a lot to untangle in this uh, mysterious story of what this Canadian fugitive has been up to for it's the cer- last 11 years. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like from the way you were describing it in your story, too, he's been playing beach tennis every day. Like, this yeah. guy's been living the life down there. He's been living the life, never had his photo taken. I managed to get one photo from someone, but he would, you know, because people really liked him. And if they were, you know, doing one of their charitable projects, you know, the group who was sort of putting the, you know, the beehive together would all pose for a photo and Johnny Williams would never go in the photo. Uh, So people did find that odd. Uh, they also said he had very weird sort of veneers on his teeth that looked quite fake, right? So there was sort of these little hints that maybe he was trying to change his appearance. Um, but people generally really liked the guy. So he's sitting in jail in San Juan at this point in time, and it looks like uh, this extradition case is going to drag on for several more months. This story, Kim, you, you must be surprised sometimes that you find yourself still covering kind of the results or the, you know, the little leads that came from something that happened like 15 years ago. Yes, for sure. Uh, you know, and I mean, this fellow did take off. He's so, you know, it, it's a bit more understandable when someone is a fugitive. But I mean, I see cases where the person's up here going to court and yet, uh, you know, there's still hearings and appeals more than a decade later, which, you know, is, is challenging for someone who is facing allegations, but more so for uh, victims' family members. You know, it just never goes away, right? Do I go back to court now to, you know, for, for an appeal for someone that's already been convicted of killing my relative this many years ago? Yeah. And, you know, these cases do really drag on. They're often very complicated cases, to be fair, so it's somewhat understandable. Um, but uh, this one, you know, once he gets back to Canada, it's probably still going to be another, you know, couple of years before there's a trial. I do think he'll be sent back. I mean, the evidence is a very strong extradition treaty between the two countries. And, you know, the, the evidence has been strong enough to convict others. Uh, yes, the witnesses against him are shady ex-gang members. Uh, but we've seen a whole slew of lawyers already raise those issues and the Crown address them in related cases. Right. All right. Thanks again for filling us in. My pleasure. I'm sure it won't be the last time. No, it won't. There's too many stories, Kim, that you keep uncovering that we need to talk about. So thank (laughs) you for that. Thanks for having me on. That's Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. I don't know where she finds them, but she does it. And once again, a fascinating story. You can read her latest in VancouverSun.com. But this case going back, what, 15 years, you know, entwines the Bacon Brothers in there as well. And the case, just just go online and read the story because this story, it's like something you can't even make up. It's like a Hollywood movie, but it's going on right now. Yes, read more in the Vancouver This is Mornings with Simi. It is the decision that many people have been waiting for from the Liberal government. Canada will not permit Huawei and ZTE to be part of the country's 5G telecommunications network. So let's get all the details behind this decision. Global News National Online Journalist Amanda Connolly joins us now. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Okay, so let's talk about this decision. Why is Canada doing this? 
So I think that there's there's multiple parts to this. The the first and foremost, though, I think is really uh, sums up in two words, and that's the two Michaels. Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor are home now. They are back in Canada. Uh, that followed, of course, over a thousand days that they were being kept in Chinese custody, arbitrarily detained uh, in what has been viewed as widespread retaliation by China over the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. Now, uh, that, of course, their, their kind of fate and concerns about their safety weighed heavily on Canadian deliberations about Huawei. And of course, now that they are back, we are seeing this action coming. The other part to that, though, is the question around trust in the partners that Canada has in strategic networks. We're hearing this a lot more now, particularly in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, particularly after the pandemic with the kind of global scramble for key supplies like masks and things mm-hmm. like that. There's really an awareness among allies right now, among democracies, that they want to make sure that their their supplies, their kind of critical structure networks are secure and that they are using those networks and building them with components and parts from allies that they trust. Okay. And this decision took quite a while because people have been waiting for this, well, for a year or two. So what took so long? That really has been a big question here. Of course, the government has been promising to make a decision on Huawei for years. Of course, as you mentioned, we've been talking about this for a long time now. And really, we didn't get a clear answer as to what kind of flipped that switch uh, to, to all of a sudden be doing it right now. But what we, we did hear from the government yesterday when we were asking about this was that it took a while to do the review. The review, of course, is the national security review looking at the potential risks to Canadian telecommunications telecommunications infrastructure. And the only thing that we can kind of come away with from their comments on that is that they're, they're, as a result of that review, the government now is not only banning Huawei and ZTE, a partially state-owned Chinese company as well in this field, they're also going to be bringing in legislation that they were saying very shortly to target and try and secure Canada's telecommunications networks more broadly. So financial networks, energy networks, all these things that really rely on telecommunications. And so that there is a signal in that, that there is, again, kind of a growing awareness or a growing concern that those could be vulnerable to attacks, to exploitation. And so we're seeing this in the context of this bigger conversation around security, around the awareness of more hostile actors and, and the need for Canada really to take that that self-protection uh, of ourself and our interests very seriously. Okay. And so what does this mean for some companies in Canada? Some of them had already started to purchase this equipment, hadn't they? Yeah. So Canadian companies over the last couple of years, uh, roughly between 2018 and 2020, uh, Global News has reported, had purchased roughly $700 million worth of Huawei gear. Now, uh, Huawei gear is already in Canadian networks. It it has been uh, included in them in, in other um, older kind of parts of the network for years. But the question here and what we're hearing from the government is that that is going to have to be replaced. Now, the full scope of that is not clear. The full scope of the ban that was announced yesterday is still a little bit unclear. They were at, the government was asked, is this going to apply to only the really critical or what we often call core parts of the network? Those really security, um, the, the ones that could be most vulnerable to exploitation or will it ap- apply to the entire network? And so. Francois-Philippe Champagne, the innovation minister, was saying that those are some of the conversations that are ongoing right now. They're having those with telecom companies. But certainly, he was very clear in saying that the government will not be giving money to telecom telecom companies to replace Huawei gear that they chose to already buy and use. And so certainly, there could be a considerable cost here for companies to replace all of that gear uh, and as they move forward. But the full scope of that is still really what we're, we're looking to determine. 
Okay, and what about Canada's allies? Where, what have they done on this file? So we are kind of the last of the Five Eyes allies here, that really central intelligence sharing uh, alliance that we're part of to take this step. All of them have taken similar steps already, limiting or banning Huawei participation in their networks um, outright. And so again, when we talk about the varying levels there, some countries have banned it from the core or critical elements of their network. Others have used widespread bans on all all equipment from Huawei and ZTE. And so uh, a number of kind of levels of concern there, but really, really a clear mark across the alliance that shares this, this most sensitive intelligence information with each other, that there has to be something done about Huawei and they are not comfortable having them in at least the most secure parts of their networks. And for a lot of the allies, any of their networks at all. Okay, so that we're not alone then in doing this. This is something that many other countries have done. We certainly are not alone in doing this. This has been uh, uh, something that a lot of other countries, particularly allies, have been looking at for a number of years. And it's interesting, too, that we have seen some of the Canadian telecom companies who are looking to buy gear for 5G specifically during this delay, actually buying the gear from firms like Nokia and Ericsson. So more European telecom networks that, of course, are rooted in countries that are allies with Canada. And so this all kind of part of the conversation here around more secure and more stable supply chains as we move forward, Canada's making this decision, of course, now, but we certainly are far from the only ones to be doing it. All right. Thank you so much for that, Amanda. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how ethical is the seafood that you buy? Listen, that's a question for a lot of Canadian shoppers out there. You want to know that information when you are buying some seafood. Now, when you go to the grocery store, there's something like 13 of the biggest seafood brands right across Canada that you see on the shelves there. There is an organization called Sea Choice, which is a watchdog that has put out a report about those 13 seafood brands to try to figure out, you know, what is the commitment of these brands to seafood sustainability? So that way you have that information when you go shopping. Let's find out what they found out. Dana Cleveland joins us now, a supply chain analyst at Sea Choice. Dana, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. How did you guys look into this? How did you do this in- work? Yeah, so um, real quick, kind of the history, Seafood Progress began in 2018, and we started out by profiling the biggest Canadian grocers, so Sobeys, Walmart, for example. Um, we're coming into our fifth year of profiling those companies against their commitments to sustainable seafood. Um, and just really quick, I'll provide an explanation as to what led us to kind of shift our focus onto what we call third-party seafood brands. Um, so, you know, it's not widely known that uh, Canadian grocers have private label versus third-party brands that they sell. Um, so, you know, using Costco as an example, Kirkland, we all know that brand well. They sell seafood um, under that brand. And, of course, they have direct control over that um, sourcing of those products and ownership. So it's a lot easier for them to kind of move the needle on sustainability for those products as opposed to the third-party brands that, you know, again, using Costco as an example, they sell, like Ocean Brands, um, Aquastar, Olivia. Um, so those, it's more challenging for grocers to bring those types of products in line with their sustainability commitments. So we thought it made sense to kind of shift our focus as a seafood watchdog one step upstream onto those third-party brands and bring them more into the spotlight for consumers. Okay, and how difficult was it to find out the information you were looking for? 
You know what? Across the board, we were quite impressed with the engagement from these brands. Um, as you mentioned, we reached out to 13 and 12 of them decided to engage with us. It's, of course, optional for them to. Uh, the one brand that, you know, said thanks but no thanks was True North Seafood. Um, but the strong engagement across the board was very fortunate because we quickly discovered that the information on these brands' websites was really limited and open to interpretation as to what they're doing um, in regards to sustainability. So through those direct conversations with those 12 brands, we were able to discover that nearly half of them didn't actually even have commitments made to sustainability and viewed it as kind of a value-added feature that's you know available upon request. Um, so we worked with those brands to take a clear stance on sustainability, and we were encouraged by their willingness to not, you know, not only make a commitment, but to make it public and to even share the percentage of seafood they sold in the past year that was in line with these new commitments in this release. Okay, so, so we, we had... We, okay, sorry, we, when you look at these 13 brands and which one stood out for you as, as essentially having the most commitments? Yeah, so it, it's a challenging question to answer. What I will say is it really depends on what the consumer cares most about. So we score um, brands and grocers kind of in six key areas. And I'll speak to three or four that I think matter most to consumers. Um, The first being, you know, how much does sustainability matter to them? How rigorous is their commitment? Um, And, you know, I I would say that the one brand that it's pretty clear has woven sustainability into their business model, um, and it plays a key role in every decision they make, is Ocean Brands. Um, But then it's also important to be reporting on that goal, Um, You know, we all know it's easy to make a goal, to state a goal, but what are you doing? Are you actually getting there? Um, So it doesn't happen overnight, of course, but companies like Cloverleaf and Rio Mare that have said, look, we're going to achieve what we said we would by, let's say, the end of 2025, for example, um, and we're going to update the public on where we're at in achieving that goal every year. Those brands are holding themselves accountable. Okay, so that's impressive then, but that's it out of the 13? (laughs) No. So, uh, yeah, I'll speak to a couple other areas. So human rights is another area um, in the seafood realm that's gaining a lot of public attention. Um, So, you know, if if knowing that the brands you buy are doing the work to protect the people in their plants and on their vessels and farms in their supply chains, the two brands that have not only made strong commitments, but also take the steps to investigate their supply chains to an extent are again, Rio Mare and Cloverleaf. So repeating those two, but it's important to kind of call them out in that area. Um, Another key area is labeling. So, um, you know, the the information that should be on labels across the board is not there. Less than half of what should be there is there. Um, And, you know, this, the types of things that we should see on a label as a consumer is what exact type of fish are we buying is it wild or farmed? Where was it fished or farmed and how? Um, and that might seem intuitive and it might seem like, of course, that information is there, but it's, it's really not the industry norm to include that on packaging. All of the brands are collecting that information, but they're not sharing it. Hmm. That would make me as a consumer a little suspicious, though, right? To know that they've got the information, they're just not telling me about the information. Yeah, exactly. There's a real gap there. And our polling shows that consumers want to know that information and it frustrates them when it's not available. Okay, so then what advice uh, can people take from this, Dana? What should we look for on labels? 
Um, well, it depends, I guess, what your values are. So, you know, if, if you have a preference between wild and farmed, um, that would be something to look for. Knowing the origin of where it's caught, again, that's, you know, if you're, if you are focused on buying local, that's something that should be made available to you. Um, really quick, a challenge in Canada is that products are only required to have the product of information on packaging which actually just means the place that it was last processed or boxed or, um, you know, packaged or filleted. So it's not actually where the product was caught or farmed, which is really misleading. Um, but I would just say that uh, letting the either the brand or the grocer know that that's something you want to see on pack is uh, really what's needed to, to change that standard. I guess what also impressed me reading through all this is that how many of these seafood brands actually did have some kind of code of conduct, you know, reflecting their commitment. Yeah, so there were um, less than half, I believe, actually had their own codes of conduct that they get their suppliers to sign. Um, This kind of speaks to what I mentioned a while back about others that are really, um, they're, they're focused on just meeting their customer needs. So they complete, you know, a supplier code of conduct that their customer provides for them, but they haven't created one themselves. So there was a lot of education with those suppliers to kind of say, hey, you need to take an active role in the supply chain and, and create your own stance and expect your suppliers to abide by it and not sort of act just as the middleman. Right. If Did, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And where can people find out more information about this and what you found out? Yeah. Um, so if you go to seafoodprogress.org, um, you will have the chance to either choose between brands or grocers. There are eight major grocers that everyone will know well um, and 13 brands so we invite you to go and check out their profiles you can look through what they're doing on each step or just see how they're doing overall and there's also the chance there to really easily advocate for them to uh, make improvements in key areas in a few clicks sounds good thank you so much for your time Thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. That. Yeah, really interesting. That's Dana Cleveley. He's a supply chain analyst at Sea Choice. Now, you heard the address there, the email or the website address there. If you would like to read more about their report, they looked at the 13 largest Canadian grocery kind of seafood brands to determine who has commitments to all these different aspects of seafood sustainability and who's living up to them. So you can make a better informed choice when you go to the grocery store. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.